If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with a top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel. And this week, I want you to meet Didier Elzinga, co-founder and CEO of CultureAmp, the world's leading employee experience platform. Didier started CultureAmp in 2009 to create a better world of work, believing that most successful business leaders put their culture first. Since then, Culture Amp has scaled to work with more than 5,000 companies and over 25 million employees across the globe. Through its surveys, Culture Amp has collected answers to nearly 600 million questions measuring employee engagement. Culture Amp was named one of the world's most innovative companies by Fast Company and was recognized as Forbes Cloud 100 top private companies. Before starting Culture Amp, Didier was the CEO of Rising Sun Pictures, where he oversaw the production and visual effects for popular films, such as Lord of the Rings. Additionally, he was founder of Rising Sun Research, which won a Technical Academy Award. Didier, so happy to have you here today. Didier, first of all, I want to start with the basics. Culture Amp, tell us, where did the idea come from? How do you describe Culture Amp in your own words now that you're 13 years in on this journey? All right, well, thank you, Alexa, for having me on the show. Um, how would I describe Culture Amp? I'll start with the second and go to the first. So Culture Amp is an employee experience platform. So it's really designed for organizations with over 5,500 now um, to help drive that employee experience. So drive employee engagement, drive employee performance, drive development of employees, and to do that across the employee life cycle. And the idea for it came in my previous life. So I kind of think of my working life as two acts. And the first act was in film, working for Hollywood. So I ran a computer-generated or visual effects company doing computer-generated imagery. And I did that for 13 years and I was a CEO for five. By the end of that, the thing, the problem that I was the most interested in was people. Like I kept coming back to what is the problem I care about? And it's how do we bring people together around a common cause and how do we get stuff done together? And CultureAmp was a desire to build a software company and an interest that I had that I'd learned and developed through working on films. So there's lots that led to that, but that's kind of the very short version of it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. So I want to just, for everybody out there that's listening, first of all, it's many CEOs, business people, people who should be using CultureAmp if they are not already. I would love for you to just give people a sense of what is the user experience today, 13 years later after many, many builds? What does that experience look like? What does it do exactly? So over time, we've expanded the footprint of the platform. When we started CultureAmp, it was really trying to solve the issue around organizational feedback. So how do we help you have a, give your employees a voice? How do you understand what matters to your people? And so that piece of it, which is where we started, is still core. And that's very much a survey platform. So it's allowing organizations to understand the experiences that people are having. And one of the things we often you know, will talk about is it's not just how good is the experience, but how widely distributed is that experience? A lot of the challenges that organizations are dealing with are like diversity and inclusion 
So what, how good is your company on a, a good day? But also how accessible is that experience to everybody? And, and what are the experiences that people are having? So we'll tell people, we're not going to come in and tell you what a perfect culture is. But when you're designing and building your business, what is the experience you want your people to have? And where is it occurring and where is it not? So we help companies unlock that. So from an employee point of view, it's an opportunity to provide feedback in a confidential way. For leaders and managers and, and people teams, it's an ability to aggregate that data, analyze that data and understand what's happening, what the trends are, what the differences are between different groups. And over time, as the platform's expanded, because with that insight, we now know all of the challenges that organizations have. And so then the next step is, well, okay, how do we solve those challenges? And a lot of those come into development conversations, how we run performance reviews, how we give feedback, how we recognize each other. So these are all areas that the platform has now expanded into. So for today, the way the platform is being used by most people is we help people run their one-on-ones with their managers and leaders. We help people run their performance cycles. We give people tools for giving each other feedback. We're just about to announce some new material around how we help drive development conversations. And one of the things that I often think about at the, at the highest level is it's as simple and as complex as what are the conversations that need to be occurring in your organization? And Coltramp is really a platform to help drive those conversations top to bottom. You've done something pretty wild. You have over 5,000 or more companies on the platform, more than 25 million people on the platform across the globe, and some wild number that I'm going to get wrong, 600 million questions measuring employee <laughs> So like, Truly, you're the person I want to ask about culture, which, uh, again, made me so excited to have you. But I just want to quickly go back. For everyone out there that's listening, that's trying to build businesses and get into your head, I love this quote that you have, which says that as technologists, we spend too much time trying to build the thing right and not enough time trying to build the right thing. Give us a lesson or two in there that helped you make sure you clearly built the right thing now that's scaling beautifully and you obviously have to still keep evolving it. How do you know that you're building the right thing? What were the markers early? What can you pay it for to everyone listening? Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't go away. So that problem's still true even at the scale we're at now. But I think one of the pieces of advice that I often give early stage founders is if you're building a software company, you obviously have to good, be good at building software. And there has to be something unique that you've brought that excites people to want to use the product. But one of the things you're looking for is that in the early days at least, people are using your product in spite of it, not just because of it. And, and the reason that's important is because what it tells you is that you found a pain point or that mythical product market fit, and you would know this, you've built a business, that your solution still doesn't have a bunch of things they need, but it's the only one out there. And without it, there's so much pain. And so that's actually the sign that you're looking for because that tells you you have a business. When people go, oh, I wish you did this, I wish you did that, I can't believe you don't do this, but please don't take it away from me because it's so much better than not having it. And then you've now got their interest and you can build with them. You listen, build, and over time, hopefully all of those things go away. I love that, which is you can't take it away because people would not be able to function and they'd be really sad. And then you just listen to what they keep telling you in order of priority and sophistication. Okay, now I want to come to the question, which is, again, COVID has changed life as we know it in so many ways. And we're still very much in it, you know, two plus years later remote work, employees across the globe, things that like we just didn't even think were possible. And I kept saying, Didier, uh, that we started the year in 2020 and we ended in 2030. And so we just like dramatically accelerated mm. how we work and function. Culture is at the heart of how organizations and groups of people function and thrive. 
especially if we're all through little Zoom boxes. Can you tell us a little bit of what are the most important things that you know about culture that a CEO and a team must get right? Many years ago, I, I worked with a guy who was a brand specialist, and he used to have a saying, which is, brand is what happens in someone's mind when they hear your name. So, you know, if you, if you have a company, when somebody hears the name of your business, a bunch of thoughts occur. You can choose to affect that or you can choose not to. Accumulation of all those thoughts, that is your brand. And I think that brand and culture are very well connected. And so there's a, a phrase that I use a lot, which is brand is a promise to a customer. Culture is how you deliver that promise. And so I think the first thing that needs to be true is that you're really intentional about what that culture is. What is the experience you want your people to have? And not just in a broad sort of moral sense of we want people to be happy, but in the sense of we've built our culture a certain way. We prioritize certain types of behaviors. We value certain ways of being because that's the foundation of the business we're trying to build. It has to be connected to whatever it is that you're trying to do for your customers. And it's that like really powerful link that drives and it drives in both directions because successful outcomes for customers not only makes the business successful, but it's also what motivates people. They want to know that they're making a difference, that they're creating impact in the world. So you have to tie the culture to what it is that you're actually doing for your customers. So the first thing is that is intentionality of culture. That's probably the most important. And then I think the second piece of it is figuring out how as leaders to tell the stories that underpin that and to keep repeating them. You know, you probably heard this before, but it's like, it's not until you're almost sick of saying it that people will hear it for the first time. And I heard a quote from um, Toby, the CEO of Shopify, uh, which I just loved, where he said his number one job as a CEO is to choose what what stories to celebrate because him calling out a success tells people this is what matters, this is what's important. And I think that's a huge part of building culture is being clear about what you call out a success, what you call out as a failure. So with that, what are the things that you see from some of the earlier companies you work with? And again, you work with just massive companies that run the planet, literally from Oracle to Etsy, Slack, many, 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 and the the list is very long. But some of the companies that are on the earlier side of that, what mistakes are those founders making? What are the ones that are just very common that people can readily fix and improve? Every company makes different mistakes. So there's no company that gets this right. There's no, certainly no perfect culture. And even at scale, doesn't mean you necessarily do it better. In fact, one of the big challenges we see a lot of organizations facing is that when you're going through hypergrowth, like a lot of the people you talk to on the show are, if you're doubling year on year, it means that at any point in time, more than half the company's been here for less than a year. So your culture is not fixed. It's kind of in this permanent churn flow and it's very hard to communicate. Like you have to remind yourself constantly to keep repeating, repeating things. So the first mistake that people make is that they, they go, they get up once a year and say, you know, here's our corporate vision or here's our culture and here's what matters. And then they don't talk about it again for a year. And now half the company has no idea what you're talking about because they've never seen you say it or, or do it. So the first thing is not communicating enough. The second thing we see is it's less so now. And I think as you called out, the last two years have really put a rocket on this, but there's a sort of sense that, you know, winning cures everything. Like as long as we're winning, culture will be fine. And there's a question that we often ask in our engagement surveys, which is, uh, you know, the leaders believe that people are important to the success of this organization. And there are companies out there for whom the answer to that is often not true. Like, no, we don't think leaders do. 
very hard to have a culture when people don't believe that the leaders care about people. That's a that's a critical thing too. That you may care, but if they don't know you care, like it doesn't mean anything. So that actually bringing the people's experience to the forefront is is critical. And then the last piece, and this will probably get into a question that a lot of people are interested in, which is, well, you know, what do you see and, and what drives it and what do successful companies do? One of the longest drivers of engagement, it was true before the pandemic and it's true during the pandemic and it'll be true after the pandemic, is this place a good place for me to develop in my career? So whether people feel that the organisations invested in their growth and development is hugely correlated to whether or not they're engaged, how well they perform, you know, and how fast they grow. And so that investment doesn't just have to be L&D dollars. It's really about, once again, intentionality. Are you designing an organisation that will allow people to grow? Paradoxically, that means that people may leave to take other opportunities, but it's like the old line of like, why would I invest all this L&D if someone's going to leave? You're like, well, what happens if you don't and they don't? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, duh. Didier, one of the things I want to ask you is just the world has changed so much in the last two years. Remote cultures are a thing that obviously many companies had many, many, many satellite offices, particularly the big ones, but now tiny ones do. If you fast forward five years, 10 years, what are the predictions you have around how companies function? Because you have such a unique vantage point. I just want to get a sense of like the things that kind of get you out of bed with this bring in your step that you see that are really exciting that are coming at you around the way that we're all going to work in five, 10 years. Yeah. I mean, this is the question on everybody's lips, including ours, and we're all trying to figure it out. I think the the key thing for me is that we're going to invert what an office was. So if you think about what the office was pre-pandemic, the office was where you worked. And then when you wanted to create or collaborate, you went off-site. And so, you know, organizations would be constantly having these off-sites and, you know, meeting outside the office, whether it was in a cafe or in a, in a hotel or whatever. I think post-pandemic, we're really thinking about inverting that so that where you work, maybe at home, maybe in an office if you're working in a shared house, but it's it's a lot more flexible. But I think what were our offices now become places where we can create and collaborate together. And that requires a different layout, a different way of using space, a different way of bringing people together. And I think the forward-looking companies, that's what they're doing. They're sitting there talking about it. And you're seeing this in the language where people are changing the way they think about their, their offices and they're much less uh, offices and much more hubs that people will come and connect and collaborate in. Because I don't know about you, but like, the first couple of times we all got to get back together in some form, it's magical to see people in real life again. You're just like, oh, I haven't been missing this. <laughs> magical is like an under... And actually, our office for Inspired Capital, the, our venture fund was just covered in Architectural Digest because our point of view was when you actually are together, you want it to be an elevated experience. Design is going to matter far more because if it's transactional... Oh, let's just do it at home. But if you're going to come together, it needs to be that like sacred space for 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 mental, you know, true innovation. Tell us more. Tell us some of your other predictions. Because again, you're staring at 600 million data points. So we want to hear from you on what else you think is possible. I mean, it's it's a, it's a question of what's possible, and I still think it's a question of like what are the problems we're going to have to wrestle with. And I think the challenges that we're wrestling with now, which is a good thing but a tricky one, is the genie is out of the bottle on mental well-being and on diversity and on inclusion. They were, you go back a few years and they were things that people kind of like, oh, maybe we might get to that on a good day. And now it's like front and center. You have to deal with this. You can't walk away from it because we can see it every day. The challenge is none of these have easy fixes. And so there are organizations, like I often get asked, 
you know, how do you prove to senior leadership that all of this matters, that we should invest in people and culture? And my answer is that ship has sailed. There's no point spending time trying to convince somebody that doesn't believe in people and culture. Let's not worry about that. Let's worry about the people that are already on the journey are a year, two years into investing in their people, but aren't yet seeing, oh, wow, we're the world's best company. Because what actually happens when you start investing in diversity and inclusion or what happens when you really start grappling with mental well-being is everything gets a lot harder. And people are like, I'm really glad you're listening, but are you really ready for all of these problems? And the truth of it is most organizations are not. And so there's a 10 or 20 year journey for us all to go on to actually co-create good answers to these questions, to create spaces where we can deal with anxiety, depression, and so on, but in a way that actually works. Because at the moment, most organizations are overwhelmed. Psychs are leaving the industry at a rapid rate. Wait times for therapists are going through the roof because everybody's struggling and we haven't yet come up with a good way of answering that. Again, as work is kind of being rewired before our eyes, is there any other part of it that you're just really excited about? So not just necessarily prediction, but just something that you see that is going to just be better for people? I mean, our, our mission at Coltramp is to create a better world of work. And what I'm super excited about is we're not meant to be the smartest people in the room. What we're trying to do is just make accessible to companies what's already been thought about, what's already been learned. You know, there's a ton, there's decades worth of science that we're just not applying. So what I get really excited about is whilst it's hard, and I just talked about it, it's also really exciting when we think about all of the advances that we've made in the way we create more inclusive spaces and the way we can frame conversations to allow people to have safe spaces, the way we can think about work that is not just punishing. Like if you look at it, so much of our models of how work got done was quite juvenile. And like we've seen in other areas, like the whole idea of a sports coach that just yells at their players, screams at them. That's, there's no place for that anymore. It's true in business too. Like we're going to evolve to a more nurturing, a more mature, a more thoughtful way of working. And that's super exciting because I think that we'll look back on a lot of the stuff going, wow, like we did that for that long, really? <laughs> and so I'm excited by that. I'm really excited about the next 10, 20 years, how we can bring you know, all the behavior change all the neuroscience, all those things we've learned, because we have learned a lot in the last 10, 15 years on how we work as humans. And I expect we're going to learn even more in the next 10, 15 years, because not only is that data being done inside schools, but in companies like Coltram, we're now doing that research out in, in the world. And we have access to real-time data sets on all of this stuff. So I think we can speed up the pace of learning and we can speed up the pace of getting that learning into the hands of organizations. And that's pretty exciting. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Now, Didier, I want to move a little bit to you. Um, you grew up in Australia. Before Culture Amp, you're the CEO of Rising Sun Pictures, overseeing you know, visual effects in major Hollywood films. Um, I want to just go back to 
you as a little a little kid? Was it obvious that you would end up here, that you were going to be a tech founder? What was that line? Yeah, it's, it's, so the answer is not really. I mean, I always loved computers. My dad, he had a, a fat Mac for anyone that remembers that, which was the 128K, um, very early Macintosh. We had a series of Macs in the house when they were not cool. So I always loved technology, but I actually did art and English in high school and did very well. My mum is an artist. And so I didn't have the courage to do art because I looked at her and all of her friends that were incredibly talented and just didn't get anything for it. And so I kind of fell into computer science because I was like, oh, this looks like fun. And part of the reason that I chose the course was at the time, if you did computer science, you got an email address. They were the only people at the uni that got one for free. Everybody else had to pay and sign up for a, a, a uni one. So I kind of like, well, that sounds like fun. I'll get an email address. <laughs> so I was sort of excited by this whole new area. So I don't, I don't know if it was ordained, but it was something that I was interested in the whole way along. But if you'd said to me, you know, in high school or something, you're going to go start a tech company, I would have gone, really? <laughs> it's not, it wasn't on my sides. If your parents did one thing that made you special that you would pay it forward, what was it? I think I was very lucky in that both my parents cared a lot about education, but for education for its own sake. So I remember my dad, I had an opportunity to take a full-time role and I also had a uni place. And he said, I said, what should I do? And they said, look, your choice, you do either. Because I'd done some computer-generated imagery for my art track and they offered me a job to work at this printing place. But then he said to me, you do whatever you want, but I would advise you go to university because they will teach you to think. And no one at work will have the time to teach you to think. So go to university to learn to think. So I'm a big fan of, you know, take the space. I'm not a fan of vocational education, the idea that like you should do all this stuff so that you have a job at the end of it. And I recognize that's a great privilege to be able to say, but I'm a believer in, you know, the arts. I'm a believer in politics and philosophy and just having the chance to learn to think. Um, The second thing they did was uh, on my 21st birthday, they gave me a trip to Europe, return trip to Europe. And so travel is such a wonderful way to open up your mind. So those two things combined, uh, I think, really helped frame a lot of my thinking. I love it. I want to go back. Uh, you talked about how persistence is a critical trait for entrepreneurs, that real grit. Where does your grit come from? I actually don't know. It's a really interesting question. I mean, I guess at some level, it probably comes from my parents. I think I was also very fortunate that I spent a good chunk of my early life with almost no trauma. Like we were a very small family. I, I didn't deal with much of real complexity in that way. And I look back and I think in some ways that gave me this almost irrational confidence that if I just keep going, something will happen. But it's always been there. Like I used to play tennis and I used to joke I was good enough to play good people and bad enough to lose. But I would just refuse to, i just keep getting the ball back and I'd let the other team make mistakes. And that got me to a certain level until my talent just wasn't enough <laughs> to play up against the next people. So just that willingness to keep going. And I found time and time again, I'd be in situations where an opportunity would present itself and you just walk through the door. Someone would say, oh, you know, I'm in Sydney. Can I meet you? And I'm like, yes. People are like, why did you fly to Sydney to meet that person? I'm like, well, why not? Like, you know, yes, it cost me $300 I didn't really have, but who knows what's going to come off the back of that. <laughs> so I think it's just an openness to experience and a willingness to drive. And it, it compounds well, and, and supports itself. Last two questions on you. Um, maybe this is my hypothesis, but I think all really talented entrepreneurs, there's something that's sacred to you underneath it, something you just deeply believe in. What is it for you? Two things. I believe in the transformative power of story. And I think I was trained in that in Hollywood in a way, but I didn't really understand it until I 
started working in the HR space. And just that power for a story to change people's lives, to transform people's lives. And I constantly go back to that well, whether it's film, book, poem, whatever, to drive myself. I love that. Um, the second thing is there's an old motivational theory called Theory X, Theory Y, and I can't even remember which one's which, but one is that if you, broadly speaking, unless you make it too hard, people will do the right thing. And the other theory is that unless you watch people carefully, people will do the wrong thing. And I think you can basically put almost all of management thinking into one of two camps. You make a call. Do you believe that people do the right thing unless you make it hard? Or do you think people do the wrong thing unless you, you um, watch them? I believe people do the right thing unless you make it too hard. And that frames pretty much everything else. I love that so much. That is such a, I also believe that people do the right thing and that the world is good in a very positive place. Um, but I've never heard it put that way. That's really, really awesome. Okay. I'm going to just ask a few quick questions. First thing that pops into your head, you're just going to spit it out and tell me first, I'm going to fast forward two years. How many days a week do, does the planet go into an office? Two to three. I love it. What gets you out of bed every day? My German shepherd puppy. Oh, I love that. Um, is there a favorite book that you've come back time and time again that in some way has changed your life? It doesn't have to be a business book, any book that you love that you find to be something that really changed the trajectory of your life? Two, any of Brene Brown's books. Um, Dare to Lead's the one that I've read most recently, but any of her books. Uh, and then another one, Poems That Make Grown Men Cry. And it's, a, it's an anthology of poems and then why that person can't read that poem without choking up. And it's an incredibly powerful book. I'm like going to buy that for my husband immediately. That's wonderful. Um, I feel like I will, I want to read it right now. Biggest pinch me moment to date at Culture Amp. The day that you walked home to your family, loved ones and said, we just did that. What happened? Um, was probably when we uh, started working with Adobe. So it was very early in the life of the company the team at Adobe was bigger than our whole company. And, and when they awarded us, took us on, that was a pinch me moment. Last question, anything other than Culture Amp? So anything of the last two years that just could be different swim lane, different startup, a product, something that caught your attention that got you really excited about the future. What was it? Insight Timer. So it's, there's, you know, there's Calm, there's Insight Timer, there's Headspace, there's a bunch of apps um, out there. Insight Time is actually an Australian originally. And the thing that I'm fascinated by is this whole movement to people being more intentional with their time and thoughts. And so I use Insight Timer as my meditation timer. And I'm just fascinated by that global shift to call it mindfulness, call it spirituality, call it whatever you will. Um, it's really interesting to see that that time has come. Mental well-being. Um, yeah. Take care of ourselves. First of all, uh, Didier, this has been absolutely amazing. Um, I'm so impressed by you, everything that you've accomplished, and I can tell in so many ways you're just getting started. So thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more about Culture Amp, head to cultureamp.com. Uh, bring it to your company if you haven't already. And you can join us next week for Ink the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Didier, just honored to have you. Thank you for some of these amazing tidbits and so excited for the world to learn more about you. Thank you for having me on the show.